morning. It is uh, it's good to be back with you again. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Ryan. Uh, I have, I guess I've been here maybe just about third or fourth time, maybe sixth time in the course of 13 years now. Is that, did I guess that right? Almost 13 years. The North Church has been a church. And uh, to say that um, I'm thankful and grateful to get to be here is quite an understatement. I, Rick and Jen hold a special place in my heart, my wife's heart. It's my wife, Fran, here. Um, and they do for a lot of reasons, but mostly because we've shared a lot of life together. We've walked through a lot of things together over the course of 13 plus years, probably 14, because they spent a year with us at a, at a place called the Summit over in St. Charles County before they planted uh, North Church. And a lot of time and laughter and tears and walking together, I think, for those of you that have ever had a friend in Christ, you know the difference of walking through people, walking with people through things in Christ and just friends that you go to the lake with that you really don't share Christ with. I mean, that's, those can be really good friends, but there's something different that happens when you wrestle through things with people and enjoy things with people in Christ. And so in light of that context, let me say this again, it really is an honor and, a, and, and I'm really thankful to be here with you guys this morning. And so if you're ready, we're going to roll. Uh, we're going to go into John chapter 14 and hear another conversation that Jesus is having as you guys are in the middle of the series of summer called Conversations with Jesus. I'm just going to read the whole passage to you. This is John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, go over there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind you. But this is John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you do know him and have seen him. I'm going to begin with this question this morning. What, what is your go-to comfort food? If today, tonight, you are like done with the week, the weekend, you're like, I want this, what is it going to be? What are you, what are you going to get? Tell me, what is it? Pizza. Pizza. Any particular kind of pizza or just all, just all pizza? That's good. What else? What else is your go-to comfort food? What is it? Ice cream. Ice cream? Any particular kind of ice cream? Like cookies and cream. Cookies and cream. What else? Ice cream, pizza. We got two good ones going there. What else? Come on, what are you going to? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Do what? Pop tarts. Yeah, like you have to put them in the toaster first or just straight out of the bag? What's your favorite? Mm. Think about it. Just all pop tarts, right? I bet I could find a pop tart you don't like, but we'll go there. They have those vegetable Pop-Tarts. You ever seen those? Those are nasty. They're like not good. They're not comfort food. What else? Any other comfort foods? Chips. Chips? Like a whole bag? Yeah. Just anything particular like sour cream and onion or Doritos, <laughs> Dorito Fire. There you go. Sweet and spicy. Yeah. So what about comfort activity? Like if you're going to do something, what's it going to be? If you're going to just like veg out. What is it? I don't do that. Oh. So maybe it's just laying down. Yeah. yeah. S- sleeping, somebody's comfort activity, right? What else? What else? What do you do? What do you do when you're just like, I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to think. I just want to... Maybe it's been a hard day. And you come home and you go do this. Where do you go? What is it? Netflix. Lots of hours of Netflix. My littlest, my oldest son, when he was little, it was a blankie, right? That was about this big. For some reason, we still have it. He's 22 now. We still have this blanket. Not sure why. We're packing, throwing things away, and it still exists. And on the end of this blanket was a tag that we never ripped off, about as big as my pinky. And he would grab the tag and the blankie and his thumb, and it would all go in his mouth. And it is nasty now. We still have that blanket. But it was his comfort go-to activity. 
I like blankets. I like, to, like the weight of them. I will crank my air conditioning down in my house to about 12 <laughs> so that I can get underneath a blanket, just, just the weight of it more than anything. And, and I think if you think about it, and probably you're still thinking about it, trying to figure out what is my go-to comfort thing. Um, when you're needing comfort, you don't have to think about it. You just do it. It could be a person um, that you call. Uh, it could be something that you you run to just automatically. It could be just ESPN for some. You just come home and just stare at the wall. For others of you, it's just getting on the web and just just looking. You just start surfing. Um, social media for others. You get on Facebook and you look at everybody else's life and see how comfortable they are and how kind of reminds you of your discomfort. That we long for comfort, it's not a bad thing. Um, the problem in our world, though, is that most of us want comfort out here, right? We want things out here to be comfortable. And we long for this, like, complete comfort where we have something going on in here that's comfortable, but also out here. And Scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 21 that that's heaven. It says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, right? That's part of the discomfort when we're in tears. And death, definitely a discomfort, shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. There will be a day when comfort out here and in here comes, and that's called heaven. But what are we promised right now? Like right now in this world where we live in the middle of a lot of discomfort, whether it's small things like an argument all the way to, to conflicts that lead to pain and death and losing a job or someone that you love moving or dying, I mean, all those kind of things that, that tend to wreck our soul what are we promised here? In John chapter 14, Jesus begins this way. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Context. Jesus has been having a conversation with his disciples through chapters 13 into 14, and he's told them several times, I'm about to die. So part of what they've heard Jesus telling him is, I'm, I'm about to die, and not I'm just going to die, that I'm going to be murdered, and, and then I'm going to leave. And so their friend that they've known for three and a half years, their master, the one that's been teaching them, has told them that this is about to be the end, and they're kind of confused by that. On top of that, he's told them that one of them in this room is going to betray them, which has led them all to just crazy discomfort. And then he looks at Peter in the middle of this saying, even you are going to betray me. And so right after this last statement to Peter of even you will betray me, he says this, let not your heart be troubled. It's an amazing, loving thing Jesus is about to give the disciples in this conversation. It begins with understanding what the word troubled means. So let, let's unpack the word troubled for a second. Have you ever been in a car wreck before? Like a car wreck that, that did more than just a little fender? I mean, even a little fender bender, right, like can, can really throw you for the whole day, especially if it's your fault because you're like, oh, man, there goes my insurance. And so on your head, all you're thinking is, this is the end of my week, month, life, because I just made a little dent in my car. And, but if you've been in one of those wrecks that was like greater than that, it destroyed your car and maybe didn't make you feel good, you, you kind of have this picture of what troubled is. When I was 18 years old, I was driving to go play golf for maybe the fifth time in my life. I didn't, didn't grow up playing golf, didn't know golf. And so I'm 18. This guy had just introduced me to golf, and this was really starting to be fun and exciting. Grew up in Harlingen, Texas, which is hotter than... Hades at summertime, which is this time of the year. So I was going to play golf on this golf course. It was probably a hundred million degrees and humid like this day. And I was in my dad's ginormous 19, probably at this time, 80 Oldsmobile, a uh, big, long, huge tank of a car that got like three miles to the gallon. And it was a ginormous car. I didn't have a car. I was in his car. And I'm driving it through downtown to head to this only golf course we had in our town. And I came up to this light and it turned yellow on me from here to that wall. And instead of running through it, like most of us do when we see yellow lights, I decided to slow down and stop. It was day off. I'm going to the golf course and the police station also happened to be right there. So I slowed down and actually got to the light in time to slow down and not, you know, screech on my brakes. And that was the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember was I was sitting on the curb and blood was dripping off my forehead. And my first thought was, oh no, don't get blood on your new golf shirt. And because I had like the only golf shirt I owned on, someone had given me this probably, who knows where it came from, but I had a golf shirt on. It probably wasn't even new, but it was my golf shirt. And I remember thinking, you're dropping blood on your golf shirt. What are you doing? And then I thought this, what am I, where am I and what am I doing? I had no idea like what had just happened. 
And apparently what happened was I slowed down and a lady in her truck, this big Ford truck, did not hit her brakes at all. And who knows what she was doing. This is way before cell phones in 1982. Ran the back of her truck into my car and completely like caved in the back of this huge tank of a car that I had. And when I looked up from my bleeding, I saw that her truck was sitting on top of my Oldsmobile, my dad's Oldsmobile. And so the next thing I thought was, oh no, my dad's going to be really not happy at this moment. And then I started thinking, what was I going to do? And I remembered I was going to play golf. Oh, and then I got really sad. I was like, oh, this stinks. I don't think I'm going to play golf today. And then I put my hand up to my head because I was bleeding. And I realized like there's blood and there's glass like in my head. I touched glass in my head because way before airbags. So when I got hit, my head went into the windshield and smashed the whole windshield. And I had like little shards of glass in my head. Ambulance had just gotten there and they were checking me out. And the culmination of all that was this. There was this overwhelming disorientation about what had just happened. There was pain, there was sadness, there was like amazing amounts of just confusion going on in my brain. And really, at the end of all that was caused by just a wreck. That's what that word troubled means. So when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, let not your hearts be troubled, he was saying, like, I know that your heart's being wrecked. I don't want you to live in this wreckage. Now, having a wrecked heart isn't a sin. Three times this word gets used about Jesus in this book of John, where Jesus actually says, my heart is troubled. And so it's not a sin for your heart to be troubled, but Jesus knows that it's not good for us to live in the middle of a wrecked heart because he knows when our hearts get wrecked, we're going to run someplace to find comfort. And maybe sometimes it's the bottom of an ice cream bucket or a whole bag of chips or Netflix or a friend or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, you and I both know that when our hearts really get wrecked, that three bags of chips don't solve what's going on inside of us and they really don't solve what's going on outside of us. The search for comfort becomes something that this culture that you and I live in is probably consumes most of what we do. It, it consumes for most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, a lot of times why we do our job. We will endure the nastiest, most frustrating job because we think it's going to provide us some things that will give us some comfort or our family some comfort. We will endure relationships that we really don't like. Some of us, right? We're like, we just complain about that person all the time, that boyfriend, that spouse, that kid, our parents. Yet if they provide us a little bit of comfort, a little bit of something, we tolerate them. We take on a hobby that we spend tons of money on and complain about the boat or the lawnmower or the prices of something we just paid for. And we do that. Why? Because somehow or another, it gives us a little bit of something that a bag of chips also gives us. And we as a culture have, have like figured out ways way past that to things that we know aren't good, whether it's seven beers or 22 cheeseburgers or whether it's medicines, or we live in a county that I, I live in a county next to a county that's the, it's the highest in the whole state of Missouri for opioids and, and trying to figure out how to comfort. And so whereas a culture, we've got really, really good at pursuing comfort, but really, really bad at really finding it in a way that actually does anything for us. And Jesus, in the middle of this to his disciples who have wrecked hearts at this moment, have been in the middle of a massive car wreck that's disoriented, caused pain, confusion, turmoil, is saying to them, I don't want you to live in this. And then he begins with where he wants them to go. Verse 1 says, believe in God, believe also in me. There's a command here that means to trust, to, to literally trust. The word the word believe in the scripture always has that word, always has this picture in it. It is, it is the idea of literally entrusting yourself completely to something like sitting in this chair. Every one of you walked in here this morning and you sat down in these chairs and you trusted that they were going to hold you up, mostly because for some of you, you've sat in them before. Others of you that never have, you still sat on them. Maybe you've never sat on that chair that you're sitting on, but you still trusted to hold you up because you assume chairs are going to hold you up. It's really funny when chairs don't hold people up, right? When they sit on them and their trust is betrayed by the chair and they sit down and they end up on the floor and everybody's like, wish I'd have had my camera out. 
But there's something that happens when you and I sit on a chair, and it's just trust. We're trusting that this is going to hold us up. And that's what that word believe means. The word when Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, he's saying this, trust. Entrust yourself to God. You're entrusting yourself to God. Remember who he's talking to here. He's not preaching to a crowd of 5,000. He's talking to 11 disciples. One is gone. Judas has already left to betray him. So he's talking to his 11 closest friends who have trusted their started trusting their souls to him, specifically in John chapter 13, just in the middle of this conversation, just probably 30, 40 minutes, an hour ago, he's told them that some of you are actually already clean because he was washing their feet and they're like, well, you know, wash all of me. That's what it takes to be clean. He's like, no, 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 no. This whole washing of the feet thing is a picture of what I'm doing to your soul. And some of you already are clean. That is, you already are in me. And so when he's telling them to believe, to trust in me, he wasn't just giving them a way to salvation because some of them already had that. They're already trusting Christ. He was telling them how they can find comfort in the middle of their wrecked hearts. So he's saying, you believe in God. You've trusted yourself to God through me. Trust me and trust your wrecked hearts at this moment that are confused and disturbed and don't understand what's going on to me. And I'll ask you this question. Do you believe God is the place that you can go to, to com- for comfort when you're most troubled? Let me, let me ask it another way. Where do you consistently turn for comfort when you're overwhelmed, disoriented, in pain and fear, sad? Where, where is that? Is Jesus saying, hey, there, you're going to go somewhere, w- whether it's on a small level of fear or a huge level of all these things are going on? You're going to turn somewhere. Where do you turn? And this isn't just a, hey, I'm better comfort than this. Jesus knows that when we start turning to other places for comfort, there's, there's all sorts of destructive things that happen in that. And that's part of what we're going to unpack today. But Jesus gives us three promises. And, and, and in these promises, the, the empowerment for us to live in these promises that actually are where we can know and find comfort. And so we're going to roll out these promises through this passage here. It begins in verse 2. This is the first promise where we can find comfort in God. Here's the first thing is this, is that we can be with God. The first promise for you and I to know that we can actually find comfort in God above all other places we can go is that we can actually be with God. Now, I know that sounds like, well, duh, but I'm going to ask you this. When you are in discomfort, do you believe you're with God? Because part of the reason most of us go to every place and any place but God to find comfort is because we don't believe God's with us when we're in discomfort. When we're in a lot of pain, we're asking where God is or where are you or how can I find you or why aren't you here? And if it's a great enough pain, if it's a great enough confusion, if it's a great enough disturbance of the force in you, so to speak, if you quote the movie, right, like when you're sitting on the curb wondering why am I bleeding on my golf shirt, what just happened, there will be the moment that you really start asking, well, where is God? And here's the first promise you need to hear that Jesus is going to tell you, you can, you can be with God in the middle of the greatest wreckage of your heart. And he says it like this in verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Do you remember your first uh, girlfriend, boyfriend in third grade, second grade, for some of you in kindergarten, preschool, wherever that was? And remember how that worked? Like the way, the way it worked was there was this crazy exchange of some, and this is the way it worked in my behalf, there was some girl that told this other girl, her name was Christy, by the way, who told this other girl, who told this other girl, who told this guy who wasn't even my friend who ended up telling this guy who was my friend who ended up telling me that, hey, Christy likes you. And then I told this guy who told this other guy who wasn't even my friend who told this girl who told this other girl told Christy, like, well, if that's the case, if that's really true, then John likes you too because I wasn't going to like somebody who didn't like me. Third grade, come on. There was like all sorts of social faux pas going on there for a guy to like a girl before he found out she liked him. And so that's the way like that relationship happened was through like four different conduits, right? And in third grade, you never even sat by this person, much less talked to them. You would like stare at each other across the, the cafeteria. You know, you put your tray down, they were over there and you kind of looking. and if other people caught you looking at them, you were like in all sorts of trouble with your guy friends, right? And so you just, you had this girlfriend that wasn't really your girlfriend and it happened through these, these conduits of people. And you know what? I have this feeling that for a lot of us, that's our relationship with God in Christ is we have this relationship with God through a conduit of a lot of other people. 
through a lot of pastors, a lot of small group leaders, through friends, and, and we know about this God, and we stare at Him across the room through the pages of Scripture that feels sometimes like a 2,000-year-old manuscript as opposed to the living Word of God, and we, we hear about God, and we know about God, and yet you need to hear this morning the good news of the Word of God to you this morning is that you can actually know God. And I'm not just talking about salvation, but know God and be with God. And Jesus says this way to his disciples, right in the middle of what's going on in the wreck. Not someday, but notice what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I'd have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. In verse 3, he says this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. There are no kids' tables in heaven. In our Thanksgiving gathering in Hope, Arkansas, where my grandmother lived, we would come in and there would be tables everywhere in her house, small house, a lot of tables in this kitchen, and all of the uncles and people were gathered there together to eat all this food. And, and what happened is we'd all get our food, and if you didn't get there before my big uncles, there wasn't much left, but we'd get our food, and then all the kids were relegated to the kid table. There was this table in the kitchen where the kids sat, and then there was this medium-sized table where some of the adults sat, and then there was this table where the adults sat. And we always wanted to, I always wanted to sit over there because they always sounded like they were having a lot of fun. Like we, they, we would be over here eating our food, awkward because cousins never see each other, you know, kind of laughing. The only good thing about the kids' table was the yeast rolls came out of the oven, which was right there. And that was money to sit next to the yeast rolls coming out of the oven. But other than that, all the laughter was coming from over there. So there was a part of me that I was like, I want to go over there where all the fun's going on. Because they would like, ha, ha, ha. They would laugh, the adults would, oh, they're funny. And they'd tell jokes. And we were all sitting over here just eating our food. We didn't know each other. There's no kid table in heaven. Like you're not going to get to heaven and, and sit 5,000 miles from God. There's no line. Like maybe you've had to stand in a line before to meet somebody that you really wanted to meet. You know, 300 people long and then you get up there and you finally get his autograph and you take a selfie with him. Like you're not going to be taking selfies with God in heaven and showing your friends like, hey, I saw Jesus, look. Like, I don't understand how this works, but you will be with God. With God. And he's going to go on to tell us not just someday, but now. But Jesus is laying this whole foundation that there's this promise I want to give you in the middle of the wreckage of your heart that you can be with God. In verse 4, he says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. What does he mean? where I'm going. It's important, and it's going to lead us to the second promise. And if we go back up to verse 2, I think we can sleuth this out together. In verse 2, it says this, "...and my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you." So what is Jesus saying when he's saying, "...in my Father's house are many rooms that weren't so, I wouldn't go tell you that I'm going to prepare a place for you." Is he literally going to leave and go to heaven to prepare a place for you? Look what he says at the beginning of this verse. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. So he's already telling us there's many rooms. So he's not saying that he's got to go back and build the house. He's not even saying I got to go back and build the rooms. This is also the same person that created all that you and I live in on this earth with a word. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it says this, that God created the heavens and the earth with a word. And so I have a feeling that Jesus isn't going to have to strap on his carpenter built and go build you a room when he goes to heaven. Like, that's not why he's going back to heaven, is to actually construct your room, even if that's what he's doing. I don't think that's what he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Going to prepare a place for you. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. I don't think he's saying I'm going to build a physical room. Rather, I think he's saying I'm going to prepare a way for you to be with me. Literally saying this, I am about to go and prepare a way for you to be with me. What was Jesus going to do to prepare a way for you to be with him? He's about to go die. I mean, everything that Jesus was about to do when he walked out of that room with the disciples was preparing the way for you to be with him. Most of us don't believe that the cross really is the way that we get to be with God. And again, I'm not talking about salvation at this moment. I'm talking about in the middle of your wrecked heart, how do you be with God? I'm going to say that as awkwardly and as un-English proficient as I can, but how do you be with God when you need Him to be with you? How is it? Because the Word tells us this, the only way you and I get to be with God is what God has done for us on the cross. 
And yes, we access that through prayer, but what is it that makes me believe that in my prayers, God is even with me? God tells us through the cross and through the work of Jesus, I don't always feel that, so what do I do to ensure God's with me when I'm hurting? What do you do? I don't know. I start doing all sorts of spiritual push-ups, right? I, I like show up at church a lot. I like start praying a lot. I start reading my Bible a lot, and not so that I can be with God, but I start doing that because part of me feels like, man, the more I do, the more God will be pleased because obviously I've done something to wreck this situation, and so I need to like balance the scales a little bit to make it, and so there's this spiritual push-ups going on. I'm kind to my wife, and she's looking at me like, what is going on? Why are you, why the love? She's wondering what I did to her. God's wondering, what are you doing to me? And all of that because I don't believe this, that God has prepared a way for me to be with him. Thomas, like us, doesn't get that the cross is enough. And so he says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? His question, how can we really be with you? Our question is the same. Can we really be with you? It's made probably the biggest probably without a doubt one of the biggest struggles in my own heart is believing that God's actually with me when when the craziest of things are going on around me not sure what yours is but it's one of mine and Jesus in the middle of this begins to roll out specifically how we know we can be with him the second promise that the cross is our only way to be with God that the cross is our only way to be with God the command he says it this way. He's about to get some teeth here as he rolls this out in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've all heard this verse as like a, as a, a verse we use sometimes when we're trying to explain to other people how they come to Christ. And it's a great verse for that because Jesus is reminding us this is how we come to God. Like, no one comes to God except through Christ. I am, I am the way. But again, context here. The context of Jesus rolling out this verse for the disciples was, you guys know this. You're about to see it in a completely different light when I die and understand it differently, but you know I'm the way. But he's telling them, like, in the middle of your pain, I'm the same way. And this is what I want you guys to hear this morning, what I need to hear again this morning. The way we get to God is the same way we live and abide with God in the middle of our greatest conflicts. The way we get into relationship with God and have things made right that are wrong before God, the way we are made right before God is through Christ and his work on the cross, his life and his death and the resurrection. That makes us right with God. But the same thing that makes us right with God is the same thing that allows us to be with God when we're in the middle of the craziest chaoses of our life. There's not something else. It's not Jesus plus this that allows God to be in the middle of our chaos or in the middle of our wreckage or the middle of our greatest times of confusion, hurt, and pain. And Jesus says, I'm the way. And here's the truth that in the middle of my life, there's going to be peace and healing that comes and, and the comfort that you long for that you're going to find no place else. No place else. God feels distant when we're in the middle of wreckage, and so there's two things that most of us do. Maybe you're like me. The first is the spiritual push-up work, right? We, as, if, if you're a follower of Christ, there's this desire to, to kind of hope that God's going to be there, and so we start doing whatever we think we need to do to get to feel God. And if it doesn't work, there's always the second place we go to, or maybe you go this first, and I think we bounce back and forth. We just run to every place and any place but God to, to find comfort. And this is why this is so deadly, as you're going to see. It's, it's not just that God's not our comfort. It's some of the, well, I'll say this, every place that we run to besides God eventually leads us to places far from God. So let me give you some lists here. Here's, here's the first list of places I think we run to whenever we start looking, longing for comfort. These are overtly evil things, and if you're a follower of Christ, you get it that these are overtly evil things. Most people that 
have any kind of struggle with porn, it's really not a sexual thing near as much as it is just a comfort thing. I don't like this, and this becomes a place we go to. I mean, there's absolutely no, there's no struggle in any kind of relationship with porn. It's just there. There's no conflict. There's no having to debate somebody's ability to give you intimacy or whatever it is, even though it's a two-dimensional image, not real intimate, but I, I get it. But it, the reason we run to porn is because it's comfortable. There's no conflict. It's there. And what's crazy in our culture these days is that the stats show that there's almost as many women looking at porn now as there are men. And it absolutely kills and destroys our view of what we are made in the image of God when we go there. And we, we may get that, we may not, but it's a place we run to for comfort. Slander and gossip, somehow there's sometimes a comfort we find when we're hurting to talk about why other people are hurting, maybe even to add a little bit to while they're hurting. We get it that the Scripture says that, hey, like, a drink may not be a sin, but you know what? Like seven beers starts to be a sin. Because at some point, you're not just enjoying what God's made you. You're trying to escape from that which you're living in the middle of. Sexual immorality is anything outside of God's design. And I think for every couple that I've ever seen in 30 years that I've been in ministry that are in the middle of some kind of uh, affair where someone's committed sexual immorality, one out of 20 of those had to do with real attraction and love. The other 19 were just escapes. I don't like my situation. I don't like my kids. I don't like my house. I don't like my job. I don't like my spouse. I don't like this. And this person paid attention to me. And the next thing I knew, here we were. And it was just an escape, a place of comfort. And we kind of get it that some of these are overtly evil things and and they lead to things that are very deadly. But let me give you another list, because this list is, is things that aren't evil. Like, TV shows and movies aren't evil things. But, but when you find yourself watching 19 hours of Netflix in a day, maybe, I'm just suggesting that maybe you're trying to get away from something more than you're trying to run to something. I had a, I'm not lying about this. I had a, had a person that I knew that watched all of Lost in a week. That's like a nine-season show that has hundreds of hours. I'm even not sure that's physically possible, but he pulled it off. And it's, I get it at times that there's a, there's a, a big fat line. Some people say there's a fine line between rest and like running to comfort for things, but you need to hear this. All of these things that are, are just things can become things that actually are places we go to for comfort when we're hurting or when we're confused or when we're just disoriented, or when we want some peace out here, and we can't get peace out here, so we run to here. And so we go to the movie theater, and we walk in, and we pay a lot of money. And what happens is you take all your discomfort off at the door, metaphorically. You set it down. You go inside. You watch the movie. You disappear into three hours of the Avengers. Then you come back outside. But what's there at the door when you walk out? Your stuff. And you can't walk by it because it's part of you. And so you get back in your car and you drive home and all of that stuff that you walked in there to get rid of doesn't go away. It just disappears for a little while. We do that with food. Like the serving size of an ice cream container stops becoming like a bowl and it becomes when your spoon hits the bottom, right? Seven cheeseburgers. We'll even subject our bodies to White Castle and not because we have to, but because we want to, which is really scary relationships. Some of us have bar friends and boyfriends and all sorts of virtual friends that we go to for comfort. And probably, bottom one was mine, games and sports. For some of you, you, you spent so many hours on your phone that you can't even count trying to get to the next level of, you know, that game. And again, nothing evil about that game, but at some point has the game replaced you going to God. And here's, here's why this becomes really important and why I think Jesus said, I don't want your hearts to live in this wreckage and not believe that I am the comfort that you're longing for. Because when you and I as a culture, and, and I, one of the things I'm praying for this morning is that you'd be able to step back and look at somebody else's life. Because as you look at somebody else's life this morning, you'll recognize this is true about your life. 
You step back and look at somebody else's life and see where they go to when they're needing comfort. What you will notice is that as a culture, we've made a, a proficient use of our time and skills at finding comfort in everywhere and anywhere but God. And here's what Jesus is trying to protect us from. When you and I spend our lives trying to find comfort in every place and any place but God, we will rarely find comfort in God. And that's the biggest thing I want you to hear this morning. When we pursue comfort in things of this world, it's not just that the thing of this world takes the place of God for us temporarily, but we get good at pursuing that and we start to get convinced that maybe there is no comfort in God. Maybe all there is is ESPN. Maybe all there is is a bag of chips. Maybe all there is is the lake. Maybe all there is is my game on my computer. And we start to go after those things in such a way, and we start making our life a pursuit of comfort, and it stops becoming a pursuit of God. And when we pursue comfort, you will rarely find God as comfort. And Jesus knows this, and so he's in the middle of this whole chaos of what's going on in the disciples' life and his life. He stops them and says, please don't let your hearts live in the wreckage without believing that I am the place to go to for comfort. We're a caring thing. And I believe this morning God's putting up a big road sign for all of us, for me and for you, saying, hey, there's, there's a lot of places you're running to right now. Where are you going? Where are you running to to find the relief of pain, the relief of confusion, the relief of distortion? And Jesus is going to lead us into our third promise. I think this pursuit of comfort is, is one of the sins that's really entangled my life for a long time. And I don't know about yours, but it's entangled my life in such a, such a deep and powerful way that, that I don't think I've really realized how destructive it had become in my life. And, and, and it still is. It's still one of the, you know, being honest before you as completely as I can, like the go-to idol of my life that supersedes God all the time is for me is comfort. And it's not about like bling. It's not like I want to collect a bunch of money to have nice things. It's about this. I just want to avoid conflict. That's comfort for me. If I can not have to have that conversation with you, great. And so God's really been pressing into that in my life for the last 10 years going, your avoiding of that conflict doesn't bring you the comfort that your heart longs for. It just moves it and it's still coming. The, the, the tension you feel, the anxiety you feel still there. doesn't make it go away. Watch what happens when you actually believe that I'm with you, and that through the power of the cross I'm with you. And there's this third promise that I think is really God's used to, to bring freedom to my own heart and begin to help me believe that his comfort is better than what the world offers. Verse 7, Jesus says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Notice what he says from now on. And he puts it right in the middle of the present tense. Not someday heaven, you're going to be with God. But he says from now on, right now, now on, you can know me because you've seen me. And he's telling them like Jesus is God. God is Father and Jesus and the Spirit. They're all one. He's saying you've seen the Father. But he's saying right now, you've known me and you've seen me. And there's this present tense about this. But he uses this word know. You can know. And this, this word know is, is this real intimate knowledge of of knowing something by experience. It's, it's me knowing what my grandmother's yeast rolls taste like that came out of that oven because I had about a hundred of them in my lifetime. And I could still tell you what they tasted like. I, I know that my youngest son, Cade, is brilliant, but he needs to be reminded why he went upstairs to brush his teeth, even though he's really smart. That he, he comes back down and is like, yeah, you were brushing your teeth. And I know that about my son. I know my wife's smell. When she's gone from, from me for three or four days traveling, I will walk into our closet and just, this sounds really weird and gross, but I will smell her because I love that smell. I know that smell. And it reminds me of her presence. Those, that's knowledge by experience. And this is what Jesus is saying. You can know me that way. Not just about me, but no, now. Ephesians 1.13 is an incredible promise for us. It says, in him, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you were made right with God, when you trusted yourself to him, the word believe there again, when you sat on Christ with your soul, what was the end result of that? That God sealed you with his Holy Spirit, that he gave you his very presence. So God is with us. But more than just being with us, he's saying, you can actually know me now. Not just know about me, but know me. Promise three is this, that God's presence is always with us. 
His presence is with us. And one of the things that we get to know about God in His presence is that He is comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says He's the God of all comfort. In John 14.16, Jesus, right after this, is going to tell Him, hey, when I leave, I'm going to send you another. And one of the words that we call the Holy Spirit is what? Comforter, helper, advocate. It's the word that gets used for the very presence of God, comforter. Let me say it in another way that that I want you to to see this up here, that God is not just a pathway to comfort. He's not just someone who can give us comfort, but God literally is comfort. And one of the biggest things you and I have to trust, and when Jesus says, hey, if you're going to believe God and believe in me, here's one of the things I want you to trust yourself to, that I actually am comfort. I'm not just a way to give you comfort. I'm not just... I'm not just giving you Rick so that you can find comfort, but I'm actually comfort. And Rick may point you to that comfort. Brett may point you to that comfort. Fran may point you to that comfort, but I'm the comfort. And I'm always with you. Here's the question. Will you believe me? And not just intellectually will you agree to that, but will you sit on me and trust me? Like, will you put the Netflix down for a moment and trust that I'm better comfort than three hours of whatever. It's a hard question, right? It's a hard place for us to go. It's a hard place for us to believe. That's why Jesus began this whole thing by saying, believe me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Temporary comfort does some really damaging things to us. One is this. It makes us make the pursuit of our life, the things of this life, and not the kingdom of God. We start pursuing everything but God, and we When God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you, the goal of our lives as followers of Christ is to pursue him. I will venture this, that some of us in this room have spent way more time pursuing comfort than we've ever spent pursuing God. We've spent more hours researching on the computer how we can find that thing or buy that thing or do that thing, and yet the the hunger to to find the presence of God for us and pursue him is is a lot smaller. And listen, I want you to hear that as conviction this morning, not condemnation. Conviction that convinces you that, hey, at some point there is a God who's promising comfort. And know this, that in the temporary comfort we're seeking online or wherever we're going, that it is very, very temporary and it always leaves us wanting more, never fills us. But there's a second thing that pursuing the comforts of this world does. It makes you and I very selfish. It makes, watch what happens to the church and your family. It makes the church filled with about 10% of the people doing all the work because the other 90% are really pursuing their own comfort. I can't give my time to that because my time is more valuable than that. I'm not going to serve with kids. I'm not going to love my neighbor. I'm not going to give to this. And so there's, there's like 80% of the followers of Christ in our world that are so trying to find comfort in their job, their work, their sports, their kids' lives that they're too busy to actually serve anybody else. Imagine what would happen to this church if we started pursuing God and how then it would lead us just in serving one another because we're actually finding our comfort in God and not the things we do. It would change the way we live together. I believe the reason most churches and I'm going to lump North Church into that, but the reason the church I'm at and every other church has this many people not serving and this many people serving is because this many people are a whole lot more consumed about their comfort than they are actually serving other people. Because they don't believe there's... I'm not saying that serving is going to give you comfort. It's going to be very uncomfortable. I'm just saying this, that you can find comfort in Christ that way supersedes the discomfort that you find in serving others. And what happens is we end up with a a culture of people in the church that reflects the culture of our world. They're just very selfish. And your kids grow up with parents that have watched them sacrifice their time and their life to buy their kids comfort. What would it look like? Imagine what kind of generational change we could make if, if all of a sudden we started believing that God is our comfort, how work would be different. How work wouldn't be the thing I tolerate. It'd be a place I go to serve and to love and to give and to engage co-workers with the things of Christ, not just to give me what I need. All of a sudden, my neighborhood wouldn't be about what is the most comfortable place I can live. It's about where has God placed me so I can love people. My family wouldn't be about who do I want to be around me, who's most comfortable. It'd be like, this is the family God's given me. I'm going to engage them 
because I believe comfort's not in the three people I can gather with, but it's in this Father, the Holy Spirit that he's put in me, who is my comfort. Imagine the change that could happen just in your own family. So how does that happen? How does that happen? What, what's got to happen? And I, and I believe this today. What God has rolled out for us is, is this real simple thing. Will you, will you trust me? We're going we're gonna to end with just a time of prayer. We're going to walk through just a, just, I'm going to guide you through a prayer time. And, and basically, I'm going to start at the beginning where Jesus said, like, will you believe, will you trust that I'm actually comfort? And so if you will, for, for the next few minutes with me, I'm just going to walk us through a prayer time. And, and I, I believe this, that this actually could be a time for us that for some of us that kind of changes the course of, of lives in your, in your home changes the course of what you are going to look at over the next couple of weeks and months is, is not just what your eyes are going to see, but what you're going to start pursuing. And so walk with me. Let's, let's pray and let's, let's go on a little prayer journey together here for a few minutes and ask God to help us. I think the first thing God's going to ask us to do as we, as we ask him to help us believe that he has comfort is, is repent. Repentance always involves two things, one, a turning from and a turning to. And so this morning, repentance may begin with you identifying and just seeing and just being able to say to God, confess to him, God, that I've, I have pursued other things besides you for comfort. And would you just tell him that for a moment? Just spend a moment confessing and telling him that you have pursued other things for comfort besides him trusting him to be comfort. Tell him that right now. Just spend a moment doing that. second part of repentance is, is not just turning from those things, but the only way you're going to turn is if you're turning to something that's more beautiful, more powerful, more compelling. And, and today we're, we're asking that Jesus, we're believing, we're trusting that Jesus is that more compelling thing. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Trust in me, trust yourself to me. And so Today, God, we're asking that you would allow us to believe and see that you are more compelling, more beautiful, that your love is more amazing than we could ever imagine. The God who stepped out of heaven and put on flesh did that because he loves you. The God who stepped out of heaven, put on flesh, and walked this earth as a man perfectly did that because he loves you. And the one who put on flesh and allowed himself to be arrested and beaten for you, did that because he loves you. And the one that took on your sin and my sin and bore the weight of that judgment from God, did that because he loves you. And the one who bore all that rose from the grave because he loves you. And so God, may we, may we turn today and see a, a beautiful, more powerful Jesus who loves us. And may we turn from these things and believe today that, that Jesus is better. God, help us believe. And right now, would you just ask him, God, help me believe that you are better than these things, that you're a better comfort, that you are comfort. Ask him now to help you believe that. Finally, this afternoon, tonight, at some point in time, tomorrow, you're going to, by just sheer habit of nature, nature of habit, you're going you're to find yourself turning to something to, to find some comfort. And we're going to ask God right now to create some new habits in us. Help us turn off the TV for maybe just a little bit, put our phone down to... Spend even just a moment believing that if we will just turn to him in prayer, we'll have that conversation with another believer that will guide us to our 
God who is comfort, that there will actually be something happen there that's way different than we've ever found in a, in a game or a show or anything else. So God, give us just the reality of your presence today, tonight. God, we trust you that your presence is enough, that your comfort's enough, but help us find that. Help us walk into that tonight and tomorrow when it becomes real, when we become confused, when things are needed and we need you, God, may it be real. May you be real. And right now, can you just ask him, God, would you meet me tonight? Tomorrow morning when I wake up, would you remind me that you're here and that you're with me through the cross? pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we end, there's going to be two ways we respond this morning. and One's going to be through communion. It's an act of getting to tangibly experience God's grace. I prayed earlier, I said this out loud earlier, I pray you don't hear condemnation in the fact that we run to everything and anything but comfort because in Christ there is no condemnation. I pray you really convicted by that, but I pray you hear grace in that because the beautiful thing about communion is that it's a place where we're reminded that all of the things that we did in our life that, that is sin that actually is majority of the reason that we're in discomfort, that God actually bore those things. And then he actually put those things, he took our discomfort so that he could hand us his comfort. And when you go to the table and you take the bread and you dip in the cup, what you're saying is, God, thank you for taking all of my discomfort so that I can have the very presence of your comfort. That's part of what you're saying. But the other thing you're saying is this this morning. I know that some of you in this room, part of the reason you're in, there's some wreckage going on in your heart is not because of just the sin that's, that you've done. It's been sin that other people have done to you. And so there's discomfort in this room because of sin that's happened towards us. Other people have sinned against us. And you need to hear this as you go to the communion table. That God knows, Jesus knows what it's like to have other people sin against him and bear the weight of that sin. That when Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't just hang there for your sin. He hung there for the sin of the people that sinned against you. And he knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be abused. He knows what it's like to hang naked totally vulnerable before people and be able to do nothing about it. So I don't know what the sin is that's happened to you that's brought the hurt and pain in your own heart, but know this, Christ even went to the cross for that. And as you go to the communion table today, God doesn't just promise forgiveness, he also promises healing by his body and his blood. And so the bread and the juice is just bread and juice but it's a reminder that the powerful work of the cross does bring God's presence which is God's comfort and healing to us. If you need to pray with somebody, Rick and I will be, with the back, be in the back and we'd love to pray with you. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go to the communion tables. If you need to pray with somebody, come pray with us and this is how we're going to respond this morning. Father, hear our prayers. We love you and we absolutely know that we are people that pursue other things besides you for comfort. And so, God, this morning, may you increase our love for you as we see you as the comfort. May you increase our desire for you and our pursuit of you as you help us see that you are comfort. God, help us this morning believe. As Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. Help us, God. And as we go to these tables of communion, God, may we taste your grace, literally taste your grace. See that you took on all our discomfort to give us yourself who is comfort. So God, help us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit to trust you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.